0: Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix. Today on our panel, we have Alan Weimar. Hello. And myself, Adi Iyengar. We don't have Sasha today, so I'll be the one hosting. So hopefully it's not too bad. But yeah, we also have a special guest, Shimon Sopa. Did I pronounce that right?
1: Yeah, you did it perfectly. Yeah.
0: Awesome, awesome. Yeah, we've had Shimon before on the podcast. I think it was like close to a year ago. And today he's here to talk about CI pipelines in Elixir. But yeah, before we do that, Shimon, do you want to give, us, give a quick introduction?
1: All right. So I'm the owner and CEO of a company called Curiosum. We basically started this company with the goal to provide Elixir development services, and this is the only language we use on the backend side. Before that, I had some history with Ruby, but then switched to Elixir totally. We don't do anything in Ruby anymore. On the frontend side, we mostly do React and React Native. However, we are not stopping there. If there's something interesting interesting in Vue, for example, we also consider that, or Phoenix LiveView, of course. And we are located in Poland,
2: So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com.
0: Awesome. So yeah, as I mentioned, you're here for uh, the talking about Elixir CI pipeline that you set up. There's also a blog post, right? And yeah, I'm very curious about like what, what things you did differently than most places and what was the inspiration to kind of write this blog post and like put extra thought into setting up ACI?
1: Okay, so the thing that I saw repeatedly over years is uh, developers arguing on some basic things in code review, stuff that you wouldn't really want to spend time on. And I think that uh, every project needs some kind of a consistency and developers focusing on things that really matter instead of small things that doesn't really matter. And uh, I believe that the more tools you have to automate some of the checks that you would normally do in code review, the better for the whole development system. And uh, because of that, I'm a fan of big Elixir CI, maybe not even Elixir, but just big CI pipelines. And by big, I mean a lot of steps that you can automate to check stuff that takes time and should not take time. And for, for instance, in elixir we have this formatter. That's something that I would see years ago in, in Ruby, in code reviews, two devs arguing how you should indent some kind of a, a function class or whatever. This is not something that you should spend time on. And uh, the more you have in... CI pipeline, the better for the whole development system, uh, for whole whole development of the project. And uh, that's basically why I thought about creating the blog post. I thought that it's a good idea to write it down, uh, to write as much steps as uh, I think can be put inside of it. I believe also that some of the developers might not be really interested in some particular steps. Also, some of these steps are like DB-related, for instance, so that if you just create a library in Elixir, you might not really need this step. But uh, what I have in mind here is a Phoenix project, like a typical Phoenix project uh, that you would develop. And basically, this is like a container for all of my ideas for Elixir CI pipelines. I wanted to also hear from the community what they think about it, and maybe they have some additional ideas.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, I totally agreed with having like a standard for the code. So people don't waste time talking about things that are, that are already been discussed. I'm very curious about that. Like, do you have like, a, how customizes your formatter.exs file? Like, is it like, generally what the mix generates? Or did you like, did you guys discuss about? I don't know, because I know, for example, like in Phoenix, I think they ignore... The migrations repo mm. in the formatter, and which I'm not a fan of, so we've like explicitly you know removed that from the ignore files. So I'm curious, mm. like if there's if you guys have any standards or do you just like follow what uh, Phoenix generates.
1: I mostly uh, follow what's being generated. In this case, uh, however, we have a couple of teams and if the given team would like to customize it a little bit differently, then I'm open to it. It's uh, After all, I want to have a configuration file that's been discussed by the team. But I mostly follow the what's what's generated. Uh, the goal for me here is just to have one file that everyone follows and the two follows basically, so that we don't have to discuss it. Awesome,
0: very cool.
3: So that's kind of one of the things of the form of the uh, formatter, right? Is that it's not supposed to be so configurable? I was a little bit shocked when I started seeing some configuration in the formatter, right? I was like, because at the very beginning they're like, no, no, this is it. If you don't like it, don't use it. That was like what the initial talk was, right? And then all of a sudden they're like. Well, maybe a couple of things we can change. I don't remember what you can even change because the only thing I actually ever do is like pull in formatting stuff from other projects, right? Like Absinthe and Phoenix, I think they have a separate like extension to formatter. And of course, they have the uh, Heeks formatter, which is quite useful. What else can you actually do with the formatter? Yeah, you can, for instance,
1: say that the formatter should respect the configuration of the formatter of the given library so that you would not format the files that are Ecto related because Ecto has its own formatter configuration. Yeah, that's one of the things you can do in there. I assume you can configure some indentation or or something like this, but I'm not really uh, sure.
0: I think in you know, parentheses, that's what Phoenix migrations remove, yeah. right? Not adding parentheses around the fields. You can do, I think, the sigils in chars, right? Like some some weird stuff. Yeah, I think these all came from like big libraries like where, Absinthe and Phoenix it was like requests request from those libraries because it kind of complied with their DSL. But for the most part, Alan, you're right. Like, it's not very configurable. All right.
3: Yeah, I did complain to them like once. I was like, why is it that you guys have to change my numbers with the thousand separators? I really complained about that. I thought that was so annoying. I never actually used that. Like, I understand why it's useful. But to me, it was just more annoying because like I had to, like, I'm looking for an ID and so I would copy the ID and then paste it looking it into the code, but because the formatter would put the underscores at the thousands place all throughout all the numbers I have like hard coded in my app, I couldn't find it. It drove me nuts.
0: My question is why do you have ID hard coded on your app? But that's Yeah, uh... yeah. This
3: is exactly what that came back to me that why do you have that? I'm like, listen man, leave me alone. <laughs> because these are like IDs that are static, right? And right. I understand they should be strings and whatever else, but yeah. Good point on your side. But then again, I'm I'm working with uh, a client at the time who was using Microsoft Enterprise stuff. So there's a lot of goofiness. <laughs> like, there was no, like, every time you want to edit the database. So, anyways, my database is not Postgres. So it was SQL Server, of course. Mm. And whenever you want to make a an edit to the database, I have to, because it's an enterprise, I have to run through what do they call those procedures, procedure calls. Oh, okay. That's so weird. Yeah. So it was uh, definitely painful. And, like, how do you automatically test that? It's very difficult. (laughs) And I don't have access to migration files for this one, too. So it's a lot of crazy stuff.
0: Wow. I would envy (laughs) you. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, yeah. The format. I'm, I'm, so, so it sounds like you use uh, Shimon, the uh, general kind of configuration the format comes with. What other tools do you use? Like I, I briefly skimmed over the blog post. It looks like you use Credo, a uh, Credo rather, and a few other tools. Would you like to talk about that?
1: Okay. So maybe let's go through a couple of steps that I've included in there, and we can discuss these. Basically, the First one is a no-brainer. You have to fetch the depths if you have the mix project. So basically that's the first step. You're going to need it in the later stages. And the second step would be to run mix hacks audit. And basically this this task will scan the, the, the packages you have in your project and list the ones that are marked as retired. But to mark a package as retar- retired, a maintainer has to do it. Uh, so my guess is that not a lot of maintainers keep that in mind uh, that's my guess but as i still feel like this is something we can add to the to the pipeline to to check these these things and then uh, you can use you can use the task mix steps unlock with the check unused uh, flag to check uh, the dependencies that are no longer used in your project so this is uh, something you can do to uh, you can do it to remove the unused dependencies basically the next thing is a library that you would know from the NPM, which is audit, which scans the packages. In, and NPM basically can s- scan the, the packages to see the vul- vulnerabilities inside a project. And there is something in Elixir world that does that as well. And it's, uh, it's called mix audit. However, the problem is it depends on the goodwill of the. Open source community, and they have to uh, basically list all of the vulnerabilities that they came across. And I I could see that there are only a few of them listed inside of this list. So that I wouldn't say this this step is something that you have to include in your uh, project. Because for instance, if you if you use GitHub as your Git provider, I mean Git Git hosting, you can use for instance Dependabot, which now has a uh, support for uh, elixir Erlang, and i would say that this is probably a better choice to to this do this kind of scan. do you think Thanks it's like the, um,
0: it makes sense to use mix um, hex audit as well you, you mentioned that it depends on the community's goodwill but the more people mm-hmm. use it the more likely that people will report the Vulnerabilities, um, kind of. I forget which one it was in Ruby which did that, but there was a similar one. Ruby initially it wasn't very good, but yeah. it evolved into something that every good engineering team had in the CI, right? What, what, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, so your question is whether it's a, still a good idea to use it, right? Yeah, okay. yeah totally. Uh, so, so I think it is still. It's like additional step that takes just a, a few sec, not, maybe not even seconds, a few moments to to check, and at the same time, if if there is, after all, someone who will uh, mark the lip as, as retired, then I will at least know it. Yeah, basically, that's my answer to it. Uh, as I said, I'm I'm a fan of the big pipelines. And if there is a slight chance of uh, knowing before de- deploying uh, that something can break or something is uh, not right, then I would like to know it.
0: I have a quick question for you. So mm-hmm. you would probably add the mix audit and and I haven't I have not used this yet, but uh, you'd probably add that in the dev and test environment, or maybe just a dev environment, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, would because you're only using it for a mixed task? Would mixed steps unlock checked unused catch that because it's it's um, still not being used yeah. in the code, right?
1: I'm curious because you use both. So, yeah. So so your question is where are we gonna catch the lips that are used inside of a production but inside of CI? Yeah. 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 So so unless so unless you have some specific clips for the for the production and you're using the mix and test for that, then yeah, you, you might have a problem of catching those. However, I'm not hundred percent sure in this case about because the question here is how it's actually checked whether this is checking for all of the ants or simply simply for the app that you're currently using inside of this this Um Right. Not hundred uh, percent sure. Here.
0: Makes sense. Yeah, I, I was very curious because uh, again, I haven't used either of those in the. Co- I've not. I've never used Hex Audit, and I've not used Check Unused with a dependency, which only provides a mixed task. But uh, anyway, mm-hmm. yeah, that's uh, very cool. I'm so sorry. I, I'll, I'll let you continue with your uh, pipeline. No, I just want to follow back
3: with this one though. Yeah. So the the Unused is looking for dependencies that are obviously. Sorry, how do you say that? They're like, would you call that first level? Like, if you actually required them, I, I I don't, I don't, forgot the word. There's like transitive and there's explicit or something like that for, for dependencies. So, like, if you require package A, which requires package B. Got it. If you do unused B, will still see it's being used by another package. So the unused is supposed to be like if if you no longer declare package A within your mix file, but because of the way mix works, it doesn't actually remove it from the lock file. Right. So it would say, oh, it's not in the mix file. It's not a dependency of something else. So therefore, it's actually unused. So that's how the thing would work. So it I would not it. be caught. Yeah.
0: Got it. So ju- if you add something, so it's 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 checking the diff between your mix exs and mix lock, not that anything in Mixed CXS is not used. So it's like, got it, got it, very cool. So it's not the required, it's a transient one that you're talking about, like a secondary dependency. Yeah, That's very useful. All
1: right, so the next step, the fifth one would be to run the mix format. However, you would like to include check formatted flag here to get the proper status of the check. And if uh, your code is not formatted, then you're going to, get a failing status, which will fail the whole pipeline. Yeah, I would say nowadays, I I see no reason not to include it in CI pipeline. I think it should be there. And basically, I assume that the whole community already knows what is mixed formatter. Uh, So (laughs) this is just an easy step here. Makes sense. The next step would be compiling the code. But what I do here is I use additional flag, which is warning errors. Which basically won't compile the project if you have a warning inside of it. You can also set an option here inside of a mix.exs file where you can just, just include this flag uh, into the whole project. And whenever you're going to uh, call mix, uh, then it's going to uh, add this file automatically. Uh, sorry, add this flag automatically. But if you don't want to do it for some reason, and there is a good reason, uh, for instance, during the development, it can be annoying because you just want to test something out and you want to remove some part of the definition of a function. If you remove some part of the definition of a function, then some variables may not be used anymore and it's going to cause a warning and the project will not compile. Because of that, you might not want to include this to the whole project. So this is like a thing you can do. You can just put it into CI. But after all, it's... It's yeah.
0: Yeah, I was just saying. I think. I think it's. It's. It's actually really cool. The checking for warnings and and the like warnings as errors. I think one problem with that is environments do matter, right? Like if mm-hmm. you check it with mix and test, you might get some warning. If you check it with mix and prod, you might get some warning. So True. that there's a that's the case for like maybe not adding it to your mix file where mix compile mm-hmm. does that because. Say you're running it in dev locally, right? And there's no errors. You run then test, there's no errors. But when you deploy, maybe there because you add it to a mixy access, the compilation will cause warnings of errors and your deployment production might break because of like a warning in production right uh, because mm-hmm. again the environments matter here yeah i, I don't know Sh- shimon how do you deal with it do you like do you run it in three environments i've seen places that do that like mix and dev uh, like prod dev and test mix compile warning you know warnings as errors. like i've seen people do that but it, i don't know diminishing it might have diminishing, diminishing returns at that point but i'm curious how do you how you deal with that <laughs>
1: But do you mean people using it all for all of these environments or putting into CI a compilation that would use this? Uh,
0: In CI.
1: Okay. <laughs> no, I would, I would normally just run it for, for one F, not for all of them, to be honest. So no, I haven't used it for, <laughs> for this kind of scenarios. Makes sense. Okay. So this is the compilation step. And then we, and yeah, I just want to emphasize that, that sometimes a warning is actually a pretty important thing that can break your app or something so that you don't want to treat it like uh, like it's not existing. So that's basically why you would probably want to uh, include this flag into Mixed compile. And the next step is, as I said, some of the steps are actually DB related. So treat this step as something that you should use. The side of the project where you actually use DB. And uh, this is a step that checks the ability of DB to fully roll back and migrate, or maybe migrate and roll back. Because sometimes we uh, write the migrations in a way that they can migrate, but they cannot roll back. And this is actually a huge problem because if for some reason you'd like to roll back it uh, on the production uh, because it broke something, then what to do? You have to Fix the migration itself because you cannot do it. And sometimes you get a couple of migra- migrations like this. And, uh, it's really annoying if you work within a team and you cannot perform such a basic operation as rollback. So this step basically is for, is to ensure that, uh, your DB is able to roll back with the migration you add to the, uh, to the repo. And yeah, I, uh, I think that's sorry. a great one. Yeah? I think this is a yep. great
0: one. I hadn't, I, I've never tried this on a CI. I'm definitely going to add this because, yeah, you bring up a great point. Like, uh, you want to make sure your schema migrations are rollback, like rollbackable. So, yeah, this is a great one. How often
3: yeah, pretty... do back a migration though? Yeah. I've never rolled back a migration. Just kind of curious. Last one. I... <laughs> really?
0: Yeah, I mean, it depends, you know, like, I mean, sometimes, you know, if you, if you have a lot of data in your database already and you work in like a, you know, fast paced, Quick iterative environment where you know one stream of work can over, overlap with another stream of work, right? There's the likelihood that one migration might affect something and might break something in production with production data is uh, pretty high. So yeah, I mean a lot higher than you would think, right? So it, it just happened to us last week, and our luckily our migration was rollbackable, backable, but a CI to make sure that's the case would be would be really nice. Yeah, okay. I, had I, I talked to somebody else.
3: Yeah. Oh, Sorry, I, I talked to, I think it was Ben Wilson. I don't know why we have talked about this. I just remember this conversation. He's like, I think he told me like he never, at that time, this was many years ago, at, at that time, he never rolled back a migration. They usually just write another migration and just roll forward with the next one. Now, whether that just is the opposite of what he just did, I don't know. I highly doubt that it may be like another like an additional fix or something but that's what he said I, I specifically remember this conversation with him but i can't remember exactly what was said but i remember he said he never rolled back a migration before which i mean i've never actually rolled back a migration i th- think. Yeah, I, I don't think I've Even ever... Even in done Well, dev, yeah. But to be honest, I mean, I could just ecto re- reset, right? Mm-hmm. If I really, if I can't really roll back. Because some migrations really, you cannot roll back, right? Yeah, there's there's some that you cannot, but mostly you can. I, I, what was it that you cannot? Like if you're removing data, if you remove a database column, you can't really recreate that necessarily. If you're removing database, like there could be a time where you're actually going to be removing a database column for whatever reason. Let's say that you, I don't know, hashed a password wrong or something. I don't know. Just whatever, right? They're, they're probably, I mean, I can't come up with a really good reasonable reason why you cannot roll back something, but there probably could be something where if you remove the column, you can't really necessarily recreate it depending upon what that data is but this is probably oh, a conversation for yeah. should we be doing uh, what is it cqrs <laughs> this yeah. kind of thing
0: i mean there is a way you can add a remove column which is roll backable yeah not the data right like you're right but you'll you'll miss the data but yeah yeah that makes sense <laughs> i mean i mean in that case you know like it's more the need for it to be roll backable is probably a lot less i would think the instances where i needed migrations to be, uh, be able to roll roll back was when i add a column or update. Generally, it's like updating string to text is like a problem that I've had a couple of times. Or changing from like text to JSON for interpretation of uh, columns. That's what that was the error we had last time. So that's where we needed it to be rolled back. But I think I think you do make a good point about maybe you know rollbacks in general can be rethought. In all schema changes should go as part of a migration. But then you have to create a new release up to uh, for a patch.
2: Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and, in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships, and how to build their careers and max out and, and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. I think I have a good
1: case where it would be like a good scenario to to do a rollback. And it's like you, for some reason, change the name of a column inside of a table. And this change should be also applied in all of the places where you use this new name of the column. Let's say this is a pretty critical column for the whole system and the developer forgot to apply this new name in a couple of places, and this causes a huge problem on the production. You would like to just quickly come back to what you had before, and you just rename the column back to what it was. In the meantime, you fix the problems. So yeah, this is like uh, something that came up to my mind that can can be a problem.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great example. I think another one would be like, I think, a lot of people say like maybe adding tests would fix this. But if you add like another layer of dependency where your columns are being accessed through an API, like if you use Hasara or something that converts your database to GraphQL and changing one column might update, like changing a few associations and then a column on Hasara, which wasn't done correctly, it might break a bunch of your APIs and stuff. And that's hard to test as well. (laughs) So yeah, that's another use case. But you're right; like changing field name is generally like a good one. Yeah,
1: and it's pretty easy to do that whole operation to this check because uh, uh, there is a flag in rollback called all, and that will just roll back all of the migrations back to the beginning. So I would say I would never probably use it on a like on a daily basis in development, but for this. But for the purpose of this check, there is such a flag. Yeah, as I'm saying, this is only pliable to the project where you actually have a DB. Mm. And finally, the next step would be to run Mix Credo. And this is actually a place where I would say that most of the developers like to have like a custom configuration because the team would like to have the aliases in alphabetical order for some reason or any other stuff. And it's actually up to you which code check you'll enable or disable. However, this is like a huge, huge thing, I would say, that really have a huge implication on what's in the code base. Yeah. And the next step would be something that actually do a security-focused analysis. And I just want to say that it doesn't mean that your code will be 100% Secure here if you enable this, but uh, it does a couple of checks that may help you in the project, as uh, things such as SQL injection, uh, cross-site scripting, insecure configuration, etc. You can see a list of uh, things that it checks on the GitHub, for instance. And I also think that this is something nice to include because why not having something that takes care take care of your security? And then Dialyzer, next step. I know that some People do not put specs in the project, <laughs> yeah. But uh, I'm not one of them. I do use specs, and actually, Dialyzer, even without specs, it uh, also will print out some type mismatches. But the specs uh, helps you go even further with uh, Dialyzer. And uh, I have a yep.
0: Yeah. I have a question about Dialyzer for you. So in our like hex libraries hex packages you know like like uh we have the custom test package and all that and custom events package we do use specs but in like an actual phoenix project i just haven't had success con- in a continued manner to stylize right the effort to maintain that and the number of errors that come up in my eyes are generally you know it doesn't justify the re- reward right uh, and i'm curious mm-hmm. what your experience has been to use it for like all your phoenix projects as well like actual phoenix projects or just like dependencies
1: I'm using this for all of the projects we run at Curiosum. So your question basically is whether we use it in all of the projects. But, okay, so can you rephrase it one more time?
0: Yeah, yeah. I have had a lot of errors with Dialyzer, right? Like I think a lot of Mm -hmm. unpredictable errors that cause, and that are caused by honestly not error or bugs in our type specs, right? And it Mm -hmm. it came to a place where amount of time we're spending maintaining Dialyzer Mm -hmm. uh, to keep it up was... And I was like some unreasonable, like six, seven hours a week on average over the course of a couple of months. And at that time, I decided like it's not worth maintaining Dialyzer anymore, and, or having it as part of the CI. I, I know you guys have been up in Elixir for at least a year, if not more, right? If not longer. Uh, so I'm curious, like, how what your experience has on with Dialyzer? Have you had these kind of errors, intermittently failing, weird errors, which are a lot of times hard to debug, (laughs) uh, pop up. And if you do, how do you deal with that?
1: Okay, so you're definitely right about weird errors uh, because there are a lot of errors that aren't really descriptive enough to figure out what the dialyzer would like to be fixed. Like uh, something that doesn't really sound like a clue on what happened. Uh, And you have to dig into the function or even other functions that are being called inside of a function to realize what could actually happen inside of this error? So yeah, this kind of errors happen. I don't spend hours on, on writing the specs, figure out what dialyzer uh, would like me to, ch- to, f- to fix or something like this. I would say that at this point, it's, it's more like a less than hour a month to apply some changes if something breaks. Uh, however, uh, it's true that at the beginning or for a couple of months when you use it, uh, it sometimes Happen that you have to spend a couple of hours to fix the dialyzer, and yeah, it kind of sounds like it's an effort that not worth uh, the reward, as you said, maybe with the time when the time flies, uh, you start to realize what the given error from the dialyzer might mean and how you can fix it. However, I wouldn't say that dialyzer is the best tool in the world; it's not, and it's just a uh, help in the in the project, and it did help me a couple of times to Eliminate the, uh, the problem before I deployed it into the production. So it, it did help. And I can imagine that with the growing project, it can help even more. But yes, sometimes it feels like it's too much pain to, to go through it. Just, yeah, hard to justify the spent hours on it because sometimes the errors are not very descriptive and you, yeah. Try to write the specs, and at the same time, you feel like you could spend less time debugging the actual error if you would push it into the production. I think it's worth once the project is big enough, and there are a lot of functions that may fail when it comes to types, and then you can see the rewards. That's that's my opinion.
0: Got it. Alan, do you, do you have a similar experience as a Shimon or or do, do you even use it in your projects? I
3: tried to use it before. It took forever, and then I just never got back to it. I, I do just use type specs just for documentation for mostly. But yeah, I'm debating to add it in, but I feel like there's such a ramp up time just to run the damn thing, right? Like is it really worth <laughs> yeah. it? I don't know. Yeah. But it's mostly the first time you run it, then then it's much faster. And that's
1: why you want to cache some of this things in CI. One of it is the PLT file generated by dialyzer. So yeah, it's faster after the first run. But the first one is painful. Yeah, it's sometimes tens of minutes. Awesome. Alright. Um, the next step is somehow correlated with the dialyzer because we use it and as you said Alan, it's also worth adding the specs for the sake of uh documentation and actually the next step is uh, is about that uh there's a library called doctor in elixir which you can use to to maintain a proper coverage for the for the documentation of the modules and functions as well as the specs it's my personal view but I mostly prefer to write a spec and the proper and, and name the function in a proper way, as well as the arguments, rather than writing the the big documentation of the function and what it does. I think it's very useful for the libraries, but I feel like it's I feel like it's a waste of time to document every function within the code and just. For the sake of uh, having a, a documentation, but uh, that's my point of view. And the doctor allows you to configure what's being discussed within your team, and you can set, for example, that you'd like to have, for instance, uh, I don't know, and sixty percent coverage of the spec with the pro- within the project, or at least a fifty percent of the coverage for the documentation, and then it helps you maintain this uh, number. So. Uh, this step allows you to keep track of the coverage of your, of your specs and documentation. And if you would like to have like a specific number of the coverage within your project agreed with the team, you can include it with a configuration file to the CI so that you will have this check enabled in the CI as well. And that's basically what Dr. does. Have you guys used like inch? Yeah no
0: inches i think it's it's like a ci it's not just for elixir but it's like i think it had a ruby one too but it basically grades their documentation i I was i was trying to i think i think doctor might be a little better for elixir maybe maybe because it like interprets type specs and stuff as well but i know inch is like a more kind of an industry standard at least when it comes to ruby elixir community to like use that and i think it's like it just grades it a b c or d based on your overall documentation. I'm not sure how configurable it is.
1: And that's why I actually love to talk about CI because I always learn new <laughs> stuff. <laughs> nice. So the last step, I think it's the last one. Yeah. The last step uh, is to run the test, finally. Um, I don't think I have much to say in here, apart from the fact that you can, for instance, use uh, tools like, I don't know, Xcoverals to set like uh, the coverage for the test uh, for the project you would like to have within the test uh, so that, I don't know, you can keep track of 80% of coverage for your project. And you can do it with the coverhouse, for instance. But apart from that, it's just, yeah, the step everyone should do, running the test,
3: writing the test, <laughs> and that's it. Yeah, definitely the cover one is... Is really a good idea. I think the default is 90%. And I think that's already, it could be higher. I know Adi's like, no, you got to go for 100, right? I think you're yep. the one that's like oh. you have to have 100.
0: Well, again, uh, just to talk about that philosophy of 100, I, I prefer 100% code coverage and explicitly ignoring files that you don't want to test, right? Because if you put 90% as a coverage, a new PR comes where you've tested only nine lines out of 10, it will still be accepted. But your, all your new PRs should be 100% tested unless you explicitly add something to the coverall. So the 100% was from that philosophy that 100% of the code that you want to be tested should be tested, right?
3: Do you test your, you know, those default files that come in automatically? I'm guessing you probably ignore those, right?
0: We ignore those, yeah. Mm -hmm. I do have an endpoint test and a router test that we add to our Phoenix apps. It actually does matter how the endpoint would function with a, a specific web server. We use that for load testing. So, I mean, again, you, you can find reasons to test different parts of the code, but because it's part of, like, our you know template repositories, right? So every Phoenix app we create from the template repositories, those tests get carried over, so it's, like, zero effort to maintain it going forward.
1: All right. And I would say the bonus thing with this post was about uh, local CI, and this is pretty easy stuff because, well, I guess most of us uh, use Git uh, for the code versioning, and there is something called Git hooks. So basically, this is a script that's being run before the I don't know for for instance commit or push that can block the push or commit. If if it fails, uh, then the commit will not be performed. So this is like a nice thing to do uh, if you would like to ensure that you don't push uh, code that will fail anyway on the CI, on the remote CI. So you can either just edit a pre-commit uh, file in the hooks uh, folder, or you can add a library from Elixir world uh, called, in just a moment, it's called Git Hooks, which will inject the commands into pre-commit, for instance. You can specify it in there. The commands that should be run before the commit, and the configuration is being done in config file in mix project. The file itself, it's, it's injected during the compilation process, it's compiled, so that every dev will have it. Of course, it's possible to, to skip it. You can always, for instance, use a git commit with the no verify flag, then it will just skip the hooks. Or you can simply remove the pre-commit file that's generated dur- during the compilation process. But that's not the goal here, I suppose. <laughs> so I would say put only the operations here that does not take ages to, to perform stuff like, for instance, checking off the formatting or, I don't know, something that is not that long to run. Because if you include all of the steps and the project is big enough, then it can take, I don't know, five minutes sometimes even to to do the comment. And uh, I know that this is like a topic where not every dev agrees on. So just do it. If you feels like you'd like to have it in in your project and your team agrees on it as well.
3: So we don't want to run Dialyzer on a...
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. you probably won't run it within your team.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think another All thing right. about the whole Dialyzer stuff, like what it adds, the types, right? And types are obviously very useful, you know, type checks and stuff. Like we are actually starting to like think, like if there's a part of the project that, you know, is complex enough, that types would make a huge difference. Maybe like use Gleam. And in fact, we are using it for one of our upcoming projects in production. So, or, you know, like another language really, but Gleam is easy because, you know, you can just compile that and call that binary itself, right? Within a Phoenix project. So yeah, it's maybe solves that Dialyzer problem in like a small, within a small context or a domain, right? So maybe that's an approach to if Dialyzer is too much of a pain and your project is like, already big enough, where should I start? Where should I add Dialyzer? Maybe like start by either creating a hex package with Dialyzer, a small package, which would take less of an effort to maintain or just use gleam for that small project. Yeah,
1: after all, I would say that uh, when it comes to creating this CI pipelines, just talk it through with your team because I know that, some of the steps might not be like, not very welcomed by the other uh, (laughs) members of the team. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And uh, you just want to have a good, good decisions being made at the uh, early stage of the project. It's very hard to, for instance, add a credo in a project that has like uh, four years and developers didn't really take care of this, take care well of this project. We've seen that at Curiosum and it's, it takes sometimes weeks to fix all of the problems. So yeah, at the early stage of the project, just talk this through and decide on what should be included inside of it.
0: Do you guys have any periodic checks that you run. Because all all of these like seem like you know, they will these are the checks that might, you know, be set up on like a push, right? If you push a commit or merge to main. But like have you like dabbled with like other tricep triggers? Like one of the reasons to do periodic checks is like if you are using XVCR for an API call, make sure every night the cassettes are updated, right? To make sure with those updated cassettes your tests are passing or a dependency that you're using internally make sure that's always at the latest version, right? Stuff like that. Like have you like dabbled with that?
1: No, we don't. However, it does seem like a good idea. So maybe do you do that in your project?
0: Yeah, yeah. We we use internal dependencies very heavily. We have like an events library which uh, it's like the core function of our event driven architecture. So we have in the Mix access, for example, we have events greater than or equal to zero zero zero. And in that CI task we just run mix steps update events and check if there's any Git diff in MixLock. If there is a Git diff, it breaks. That means you're not at the latest version. And if there isn't, it just runs. And we check that every night to make sure, you know, not only during triggers, but also every night your apps are the right, you know, all the apps are the correct version.
1: So I think I have the next step <laughs> in the CI process. Thanks nice. to you. It, it really sounds like a good idea. So I think I'm going to add it.
3: Yeah. So here's something that you may consider to add to your stuff is, I think, I forgot what the name is. I think it's called Is It Down or something. I think I can get the name. Have you heard about this one? It's like automatically just ping your site every five minutes or something like that. Do you know what I'm talking about? Right. Like a health check? Yeah. Hold on. Let me get the name because it's it's a really good deal. I just had this, this. So the reason, here it is, Uptime Robot. So this one, you get 50 free health checks. Yeah, they're health checks, right? And you think it's not super important or whatever, but one thing I ran into very interestingly is that I usually I deploy on Kubernetes and we use Cert Manager, which will automatically pull the latest certificate. Well, I got a message from one of my clients and he was like, "Hey, nobody can use the app right now, and it's all like uh, API based, so it's a mobile app and we all have GraphQL endpoints, and it wasn't working." And I thought to, my, thought to myself, "Okay, what's going on over here?" And then we just ran the app locally and see what's going on. What actually happened is that certificate didn't fail to renew using Cert Manager. So the app was running, but in the infrastructure, it wasn't actually quite working. Right. And Uptown Robot will actually check your cert and let you know when it's like seven days, need to renew, et cetera. So yeah, that's something I think is good to have. It's not really Elixir related necessarily. Nothing really to do with Elixir itself, but I think it's a good thing to have overall is because... I've never had that happen before where a certificate failed to renew. And I think it's a good thing to have.
0: I feel like that's more of an SRE than CI. I consider CI more towards, you know, like a development. Oh, sorry. Um, You're talking
3: about CI only. Okay, sorry. You you, you said periodic job. I was thinking about that one rather than a CI. Right,
0: right, right. I guess periodic thing that's relevant to the development, but I mean, you bring up a good point, like uptime monitors. uh, I I know a lot of like Elixir teams use AppSignal, right? Like it works really well. AppSignal also has like very configurable uptime monitors. And yeah, I think totally makes sense. Like we, every app, every Phoenix app that we launch, we add an an API slash status endpoint to that. And there's a deep check and a shallow one. A shallow one just checks if a call can be made. A deep one checks if database connections are alive and stuff. Like having those endpoints to all your Phoenix apps kind of does make, make sense too. And like that API check, the shallow one will make sure you know, the certificates are up to date and the app is kind of accessible in the web as well. But, but yeah, I mean, this SRE, I mean, with, with, you know, like the Kubernetes and like all the cloud stuff, the line between dev and ops is like already very blurry. So you can very well make that as part of your CI.
3: Yeah, I've actually never thought about monitoring database connections but apparently they can go down at any moment, right?
0: Oh yeah, it's if again depending depending on your you know like your, your scale like it, it happens very often with the events part of our systems because everything every event every update every access to the site we generate events and it's yeah it's very important for us to monitor we have a every minute uh, we make the call to our event system to make sure it's up. It also took us a lot of effort to get it to zero downtime, which wasn't it. You know, Phoenix out of the out of the box did was not set up for that.
3: Now, do you run, what is it that Netflix does? They have like a self-killing... Chaos Monkey. monkey. Yeah, I I was going to say Chaos Monkey. I wasn't sure of that. Do you?
0: We have a similar one. We use stream data to generate the bad data and we use the whole chaos. The whole chaos architecture is within a stream data property test to make sure the results are correct. So we run it as a test as well. It's not like as nearly as sophisticated as as Netflix, but it is at least... I I think what I like about it is that instead of you know, if there's something complex like an NP hard problem, instead of humans, you're letting the machine find errors for you that you can then address and solve the edge case. Because like, if there's an error, it does print, hey, this is the date of birth of the patient. This is the appointment and time. And here's the dental office where it was, all, you know, all the relevant stuff to our domain. And we can literally copy and paste that into a factory call and set up the data and like replicate that locally very easily. So it has, we've, we've caught, I want to say like 16 last I checked, bugs in two weeks in our new scheduling portal that we launched, which is like an NP-hard problem. So it, it's huge if you're solving an NP-hard problem. Types would have helped <laughs> for sure. But if you don't have types, property-based testing with like a chaos engineering is very useful. But that's like, I guess we're talking like very, we're beyond CI now, <laughs> I think. I was curious if you guys have played around with any kind of chaos or even like property-based testing.
1: Yeah, Played a little bit, but uh, it's not a part of every, every project we run. yeah, but definitely something to consider.
0: Awesome. yeah, that's really cool. I definitely learned a lot from this. like I did not think about the the rollback stuff for sure, and we also don't use depth audit. so I am very excited to go back update RCI to add these things to to that. so uh, uh, thanks for
1: thanks for the knowledge here, Shimon. Yeah, thank you too. As I said, it's always a nice uh, thing for me to to talk about it because I don't want to spend too much time on code reviews. Of course, it's not that you can automate everything, but still as much as you
3: can, and I'm, I'm for it. Awesome.
0: Alan, do you have any other closing questions or thoughts?
3: No, I, I literally took this link and I sent it to somebody, one of my people, and I was like, we should implement at least some of the stuff. I think nearly most of it. The, the database thing, I'm, as you know, I'm a little bit not too sure, but uh, everything else I think is pretty good. Especially, I mean, you, so below is good. I had no idea about the other stuff, and then also Inch is uh, interesting too. So that's something I may consider also because we're I'm trying to push everybody to, to do docs because it's very
2: useful. That's great. Hey, folks! If you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium.
0: Awesome. Well, I guess this is it for our podcast. We do do picks, uh, Shimon. I'm not sure if you remember from your last time. So I'll let you, you know, I'll give you some time to think about your picks. But Alan, do you want to go first?
3: Yeah. So... I just started reading this book because I'm working on, I had like the staging environment set up and I need to get a demo and a production environment set up on AWS. And I've been trying to get more and more into Terraform. And I just started going through this book called Terraform in Action from Manning. And it's been super helpful. Like I just been reading from the beginning and I got through Terraform by myself and just reading this book already. I I think I'm on the second chapter. It's not a lot, but it already explained quite a bit more to me than when I found out trying to kind of crash course through it all. So I think it's a pretty good book. It's a little bit old, but to be honest, it's still about the same. I don't see much difference so far. So I think it's a that's my pick for, for this week. Awesome.
0: Awesome. I have a couple uh job related picks. I this time the candidates. I have two really good candidates who are still looking. Both are like late entry level, early mid Elixir engineers both are amazing. Their names are John Hits and uh, Neil Techni, but I'll put their contact information in the show notes too. But if you guys need more information on them, reach out to me. I've been mentoring them for some time. They also join like a weekly mentoring group that I'm a part of with Bruce Tate. Uh, he's the one who leads that. So they've been really investing time into learning Elixir, very motivated people. So yeah, if you need like two awesome entry-level motivated Elixir engineers. These would be great candidates. That's it for my picks today. I don't have any video games or anything else today for a change. So
1: Shimon, do you have any picks? I have an invite. We have meetups every month, Elixir meetups. And we decided to do, because of COVID, we decided to do it online. Maybe someday we'll do the hybrid, but we meet every month. And you can sign up for that on our page, kuriosm.com. At the bottom, you can see in the footer, uh Felix, your meetup. Maybe you can also link it to uh, to the podcast episode. And uh, it's as I said, it's, it's happening every month. You can join as a speaker or as a listener, but there are around 50, 60. One time it was 70 people joining and there's a lot of knowledge in there. So if you'd like to share it or learn it, then Feel free to join.
0: Yeah, I have seen you guys advertise on LinkedIn and I've been wanting to attend one for a while. Just it hasn't worked out for me. The time hasn't worked out for me, but it does sound, some of them sounded really interesting. I know you had one about, I think career development, if I'm not mistaken, like how to, there was one about like going, becoming senior if I'm not mistaken, right? Like from junior to senior or something like that. I'm not sure. I can't remember, but I, I know some of the topics are very interesting and we can it on LinkedIn. So I, g- I get those notifications every now and then. So yeah, I, I can recommend that as well to others to join it, it. Those all sound like very interesting topics.
1: Yeah. We try to try to cover different topics as well. So that's not only for seniors, but also juniors, et cetera. So yeah, you can expect different type of topics in there.
0: Very cool. Awesome. Well, I think this is it for this week, folks. We will see you next week. Until then, have a good week doing Elixir or whatever you do. Bye.
1: Bye-bye. See you
2: guys. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit dot com to learn more.